Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Your Amigos uh, Paper of the Month podcast. We're here again with Cora Sternberg. Uh, Cora, welcome. You just published a, a paper regarding FGF inhibition in advanced urothelial cancer. Why don't you just introduce yourself briefly and then give us a bit of the, the scheme of the study in the background, and then we'll sort of dive into results. Okay. My name is uh, Cora Sternberg. I'm a medical oncologist at, at Weill Cornell Medicine and the clinical director at the Englander Institute for Precision Medicine, which is also part of the Meyer Cancer Center in, in New York at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, I think Tom wanted to speak a little bit about the background of FGFR. Do you want to talk about that or do you want me to do it? Oh, cool. You're far away. You're far oh. away. You do your, you do your best. So, uh, with the advanced urothelial cancer, for years we only had chemotherapy, and more recently we've had uh, the addition of immunotherapy, which has really been wonderful. Um, the drug ertafitinib, uh, which is an FGFR um, two and three, uh, attacks FGFR two and FGFR three, is an oral um, uh, FGFR inhibitor, and that has been approved with a phase two trial with a forty percent response rate. Uh, what we did here was uh, study a different drug, uh, another FGFR inhibitor called rogaratinib, which is an FGFR one to four inhibitor. But we only looked at uh, messenger RNA of FGFR one and FGFR three. This was based on a prior phase one study done with rogaratinib in which they showed um, a, in, in a variety of solid tumors, some 50% um, were positive for messenger RNA. So in the assay that was used in the phase one study, part of the thing that happened with this study was that a different assay was used. And in this assay, looking at messenger RNA for FGFR1 and FGFR3, 67% of patients were positive for messenger RNA. The, the way the, uh, study was organized was this was a randomized study for patients who had received at least one or even more uh, cisplatin-based or other chemotherapy. They could have re uh, received immunotherapy. They were stratified by whether or not they received immunotherapy. They were stratified by their Belmont risk score, and they were stratified also by um, whether or not they had uh, PIK3CA or RAS mutations, which may uh, create uh, resistance to the FGFR uh, inhibition. And then they were randomized between rogaratinib, which is an oral pill, 800 milligrams a day, versus investigator choice of chemotherapy, which was vinflunine, taxol, or docetaxel. And what happened with this study was, um, for some reason, a very they had a different assay than, the, than their other assay. So a very high percentage of patients had the messenger RNA. Some, this was a, a study done internationally in 161 uh, different sites. Um, they had screened 683 patients or something, and they they got a very high rate of six, of um, messenger RNA expression. When so, Cord, let me just cut in there. Let's talk about the biomarker a little bit. I mean, you said it's a really high rate of expression. So, do you think, you know, it's sort of overselected, if you will, that is there a reason that mRNA, mRNA expression wouldn't mean pathway activation? I think that uh, maybe mRNA expression might mean pathway activation, but in this particular study, they didn't use the same assay that they had used for their first phase one study. They combined with a, a, another company in the UK, and and the many more patients were positive than had been in the phase one. When they independently afterwards went back to look at this and, and reevaluated it, there was a high number of patients who were really not uh, 
mRNA positive even. Um, the expression like 79% really should have been in the study. So no, quite a number of patients that were in the study probably shouldn't have been in the study based on messenger RNA expression. I can talk later about what happened when they looked at the ones that were positive for mRNA and also um, for DNA expression. So, folks so Cora, we've got, a, we've got a class of drugs with a track record. Erdafitinib's come through. The erdafitinib um, biomarker, they used a PCR technique. Um, much fewer percentage were positive. They were looking for fusions to FGFR um, 1 and 3. Um, this program's gone down a slightly different biomarker route than RNA technique. We did a study called Biscay. We looked at um, mutational analysis. Um, we showed 25%. Um, with, there are other drugs, pan, the BGJ398. They're all coming in at single arm trials with about 25% response rate. Erdafitinib a bit higher, actually. Um, and they're all, they're all using slightly different methods of selection. Do you think we've got... Uh, do you think we, we've got the right biomarker? Before we go into the results of the trial, with all of this noise I and all these different drugs and all the different biomarkers, it reminds me of the, the PDL1 story. It's very much the PDL1 story, and it's very much confusing, and it's very much a shame that maybe a, a good drug didn't get the results that, that it could have gotten. This was a, a, a very promising study, but I think that the biomarker is a problem. And when you even look at mRNA expression and you use one company and you combine with an English company because this one company in America and one with an English company, they got different results than they'd gotten in their other studies. So, I mean, there's definitely problems with the biomarker. Or it sounds like you're, you're blaming the English here, which I fully support. I'm blaming support. the English, but I'm blaming the biomarker. <laughs> we blame many times before. The I mean, there were 14, 15, you were blamed for that as well. Uh, no, but I was looking. I was looking in the supplementary materials at what was the difference in the company, and the same company in America was involved too, but plus another company. So it was a little bit, you know, something happened there. Does this the just speak to the difficulty of doing global biomarker-based trials? Because sometimes you make practical decisions, right? You're doing 161, and you're doing tissue, and you know it's so just hard. Well, to well, this had 68% of patients were positive, and clearly 68% of patients don't have FGFR right. alterations, That's let alone what FGFR 1 and 3 alterations. Exactly. Um, That's the problem. Well, why don't we talk about the results of the study? Because we haven't really got there yet. We've, we've kind of put the cart before the horse a little bit. We've done this before. But you've, got, but you've got a, a response rate of PFS and you've got some OS data as well. Do you want to go through that? Well, if we if we look at the the overall response rate with uh, the rogarathinib was 20.7% and it was 19.3% with chemotherapy. Okay, the median overall survival was 8.3 months uh, with rogaratinib and uh, 9.8 months with uh, chemotherapy. The phase three part of this study, this is a phase two study, it was stopped, but the phase three part of the study was to look at overall survival. So the overall survival and the response rates are really very similar for a, a small numbers of patients. Uh, ultimately, only 175 patients were in this study. Um, uh, 88 in the in the chemo arm and 87 in the rogaratinib arm, so I think that that's a problem. The PFS was very short in 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 both arms, really very short. Uh, so that was really a problem. And and the, when the um, when the uh, data monitoring board looked at the study, they said, "Wait a minute, there's too many deaths going on. What's happening here?" And then they they most, although most of the patients were entered at 800 milligram dose of, of rogaratinib, they said to lower the dose to 600 milligrams. But when they looked further on, the problem was not really um, 
toxicity of rogaratinib because the patients that died in both arms died because of progression of disease. These were heavily pretreated patients who'd gotten a lot of chemotherapy. Most of them got immunotherapy as well. So they were heavily pretreated patients to, from yeah. all over the world put into the into this study. And so, when they looked at the deaths in, in both arms, they were all uh, attributed to progression of disease. So Cora, the response rate in this study you said, I think was 20, 21% is, doesn't seem that much different than the prior response rates to this agent or is it much lower? The prior response rates to this agent in urothelial cancer? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I think it's, it's not, it's not, it's not much different. I, I mean, I don't think that they, they had a phase one trial with a lot of, a lot of different tumors. And, okay. Uh, and then just jump, were, jump to this randomized trial. Jump to this randomized trial, yeah. expecting, expecting mm -hmm. a higher response rate, like in the 40% range. Uh, so Brian, there was an insight uh, study, fight two, and there was the BJG398 and they both had response rates in their pan-FGFR inhibitors around 25%. And this is about the same area. The only drug that looks a little bit higher is erdofisinib with response rates of 40%. In, that, in their selected population, remember it's a different population because of the biomarker. And their PFS is 5.5 months and OS about 14 months, as opposed to what we're seeing here, more like OS of 10 months. But you know, we're comparing phase two studies it's it's a similar type population. I guess one of my questions, Cora, would be: you know, this trial was stopped early. It was clearly negative. The two PFS and OS curves are on top of each other. Each other. Um, the but the results, you know, they didn't look quite as good from the back of the room as the erdofitinib data that uh, that, that Johan Lorio presented. Um, do you think this FGF biomarker is prognostic? It doesn't because the control arm didn't did quite well, you know, did as you'd expect, really, isn't it? it about so the biomarker. I, still, I, I don't. I think is the way that they measured the biomarker with a with the mRNA expression wherever they measured it was not enough. So when they when they did retros, retrospective uh, analysis post hoc let's say analysis of the FGFR three DNA alterations in those patients who had had FGFR three messenger RNA alterations, the response rate with rogaratinib was 52.4% as compared to 26.7%. So let's just say that perhaps if they had used uh, FGFR3 DNA sequencing, it would have gotten a completely different result in, in this study. So, I mean, again, it's, there's small numbers of patients in, in this study because it was stopped early by the company. It was stopped in the, in the phase two part. We never got to phase three. But I think that um, maybe the FGFR3 messenger RNA, the way it was done was was not correctly done. And also when it, when a pathologist re-reviewed it, he said that 79% of those patients didn't even have that. So, Cora, is there any appetite to look just at the FGFR3 alterations? I mean, as you said, that's probably what you were expecting going FGFR3, in. It should be FGFR3 DNA. DNA, yeah. Yeah, because it, I think that if that uh, I would re redo that study with that drug, I mean, that drug was not a bad drug, actually. Um, it would be with FGFR3 DNA alterations. And that was about a quarter, the DNA alterations were about a quarter of the total population. If I'm looking at the table 21 out of 82. Of 11 of 21. Um, or 11 of 21, I see, okay. And for the the... For responders, but 21 with the alterations. 21 with the alterations. And that's about that's more in line with what you'd expect for FGF alterations as opposed to 67%, right? Yeah. No, no, I, no, I, no. The response rate. I'm just saying that the response rate for the FGFR3 yes. 
patients with uh, um, FGFR3 DNA alterations, they looked at the patients with FGFR3 uh, uh, messenger expression, and they looked at DNA alteration, the response rate in 11 of 21 patients was 52.4%. Yeah. For regoratinib, and it was only twenty six point seven percent for chemotherapy. Lacroix, can I launch a torpedo towards your fleet on this theory? <laughs> in the supplementary data, yeah. there's a Kaplan marker for overall survival of those FGFR patients, and I realise there are only you know twenty patients in each arm, but the hazard ratio is one point five, um, and it's in the supplementary data. I realise, um, and and it's very underpowered, and the Kaplan markers. Yeah. You're not quite right. But, you know, it doesn't that in exploratory analysis, which this is, yeah, the response rate looks great, but obviously a hazard ratio of 1.5 doesn't look great. And, and I realize, you know, the numbers are really small there. But certainly, you know, even then I look at that and think, well, in an exploratory analysis, the response looks good, but the hazard ratio 1.5, you know, you wouldn't launch a randomized phase three off that, would you? No, would I wouldn't. But I think with such small numbers, you can't look at uh, overall survival curves or anything of the of the sort. Fair enough. Fair enough. I will accept small that. Numbers that don't mean anything. They don't. It's 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 it. It makes you think maybe we use the wrong marker. That that's what I would say. You know, I that if enough. I were to relaunch something, I would do it with the, looking at FGFR three DNA. That's all I'm just saying. We so, can't have this discussion without Norse mythology coming into things. I'm keen to bring that in, and I'm going to start with the Thor study, uh, the king of, of of Norse mythology. And the Thor trial is a randomized phase three study of erdafitinib versus either chemotherapy or immune therapy, pembrolizumab, in platinum refractory disease. The design's quite nice um, in that there are two parts to it, one versus chemo, one versus immune therapy. My preference was to try and build the whole lot together, but they essentially didn't take my advice and have gone down two separate roads. And these two cohorts, you know, we're going to see a, a repeat of this study with erdafitinib and a different biomarker. Do you think this results here is completely inconsequential because the drug's different and the biomarker's different? Or does this make you nervous for the results of the Thor trial? No, it doesn't make me nervous. I think that this study is the way it was done and the problems with the biomarker don't say anything about how they're doing the Thor study. It's a different study. It's a different biomarker. And, and we see results all over the place with different studies. And I think that the problem is that we have not gotten the biomarker down well enough yet, personally. So I don't know, they could get any results, but I'm not nervous about the Thor study. Are you? Um, I'm I'm very nervous about all, most of the studies. I'm, I'm nervous all the time, so. I'm just nervous, <laughs> nervous person. I mean, I don't know, Cora, I looked at that FGFR overall survival curve, the one in your supplementary data, and I looked at that and thought, you know, if it was going to work anywhere, it should work there. And I agree, it's an underpowered curve, but, you know, the hazard ratio 1.5, you know, I don't say 20 patients. I just looked at it and I thought, I'm a bit nervous. We've done, a, we've got, we've got this phase one study, um, or the phase one sort of B study, New England Journal of Medicine that Johan Lorio led, you know, with response rates of 40%. Um, the FDA, you know, in their label, they talk about response rates of 30%. Um, so, there is a bit of, um, and, and I don't quite know why those numbers are different. Uh, the PFS does look better, um, but it, you know, I'm a bit nervous about it. You know, <laughs> in Portumavidotin got a hazard ratio of 0 0.7 in unselected patients. It's not an easy, I don't think it's the easiest place to go. There's lots of access these days to subsequent therapies. Um, so I think it's complicated. 
I'm, you know, I looked at this, these results and I was a bit more nervous, honestly. I looked at this and thought, hmm, there's, you know, the, the, it's not like any of the endpoints look encouraging and even the exploratory data is hard to explain. So yeah, I'm a bit nervous. I mean, this this study is, is clearly a negative study. I mean, I was in charge of the, the steering committee for the importance of the Doton study, and I, I stopped the study, told the company it's time to stop and to cross everyone over to Infortimabodotin from the chemotherapy arm, and they they agreed with me, and they did that, and that's it was a positive it was a very positive study in unselected patients, and that's clearly a very good drug. It's an excellent drug, but not without its toxicities as well. These all of these drugs have different toxicities, and all the patients. I mean, the more drugs that we have for for these patients. Uh, um, the, the better off we are. And I think that the FGFR inhibition is something important and we just need to find perhaps the right biomarker in the right patient uh, population. So Cora, two, two maybe final questions. One is where are you using erdafitinib in practice? And the, the second, which you may have just commented on is, you know, where does the field go from here? Are we just waiting for that erdafitinib phase three? Where does the FGFR inhibitory field in bladder cancer go from here? I think that um, I'm using both artifitinib and fortimavidotin after I'm using chemotherapy, immunotherapy, mostly in maintenance or, or else in second line. And then if the patients have FGFR mutations, which I try to use artifitinib before I go to fortimavidotin uh, uh, and then sazituzumab covitikin. <laughs> based upon very, very little data of the right order, whether or not we should use um, EV before ertafitinib or ertafitinib before EV. Maybe one very small study that I saw saying that maybe it's better in those patients to give the ertafitinib first. We're doing more and more sequencing. We're doing whole genome sequencing. When I see patients are getting on the line of using one and another, another, I know in a month or two or three months, they're gonna be in trouble. And we're trying to do whole genome sequence mm -hmm. to see what else we can come up with in patients and see if we can find you know hrd abnormalities or whatever and i think that in the future we'll be doing more and more sequencing and we'll probably get it more right of what who are the patients that will respond to whatever uh, therapy i don't think we know the right sequencing order as yet i don't think we have enough data on that to know for instance if you should give ev first before ortofitinib or ortofitinib before ev sure I'm telling you what i'm doing based on very yeah yeah. yeah, same. Tom, what do you think about where the field's going? I mean, he's expressed well, nervous, nervousness there. over the biomarker. What, you, what else do you want to say? Just before we get there, I'll come back to that. Well, can I ask you which biomarker, I mean, do you, which biomarker, how do you measure FGFR uh, alterations and which patients do you select for odafitinib? Well, odafitinib is, is, is with uh, FGFR3 and FGFR2 amplifications and FGFR3 uh, mutations. It's a little bit different, right? And how do you measure it? Do you using foundation or you use the PCR test in the label? Which one do you use? Actually, we have our own internal well, Cornell, something it's called Oncomine. And then we have we work with a, a variety of different companies. We're working with several different companies. And we're also working with the New York Genome Center to do the whole genome sequencing now on many of our patients. And Brian, which you, how are you measuring FGFR? You might be on mute, Brian. Yeah, sorry. We have an institutional contract with Tempest, so we send our sequencing through Tempest and then do the same that, that course. So not the way it was measured in the New England Journal paper, neither of you. And we've agreed the biomarkers are a mess. <laughs> okay. So um, let me, but, you know, I, I think that you know, my that take on, <laughs> um, just the last one from question from me, Cora, there's quite a lot of debate around patients with FGFR alterations not being those individuals who respond to immune therapy. 
And there's a little bit of contradictory data out there. There's a little bit of data from the Javelin program and one or two to suggest that might be the case. Um, but it's not universally the case. And in the Norse trial, trial where erdofitinib was given in combination with PD-1 inhibition, there was response rates of 68% versus 33% for erdofitinib alone. Have we sorted out this immune therapy story yet? Do we know whether or not those patients who um, have FGF alterations are non-responders to immune therapy, or is it just too confusing? I think we haven't sorted it out at all. I mean, people have said that, and then there was a paper by the Golsky's group uh, showing that just the opposite, that they do respond to immunotherapy. So I think if a patient has an FGFR alteration, if they, uh, based on the Javelin study, if I've given them chemotherapy, I, I'll go to switch maintenance and give them Avelumab. I won't just say, okay, now I'm going to treat them with erdofitinib. I think that, you know, I think that we, we don't know enough about it yet. Don't you we, uh, the, the European Guidelines Group try to wrestle with this issue of erdofitinib and infortumab vedotin in the knowledge that many countries in Europe don't have access to either, which is a terrible shame. Um, we, um, you know, we decided that we were going to go with the level 1A evidence. So we are saying that you should be giving uh, EV uh, with level 1A evidence because they've got a positive randomized phase three rather than the FGFR alteration, even those individuals with FGFR alterations. I realize that's quite controversial. We're obviously waiting for this randomized thought trial, which is going to be really important. I think sometimes, and I don't know what your two opinion of this is, when sometimes when you know there's a biomarker there, even when the data is not super strong, you want to chase it. Um, and I'm not always sure without the randomized data or really robust data sets. And we don't really have that with FGFR inhibition at the moment because the lack of randomized trial and this trial being negative, we don't really have those robust data sets yet. So I'm probably going to wait a little bit. You know, of course, they'll see with, with sequence erdofitinib after EV if they had FGFR alterations. But in terms of we're probably going to go with the randomized data first. But you folks in the US, you tend to like to approve drugs off phase twos. And I think your mindset is slightly different. No, but I, I'm not saying anything different. I'm still giving, even if, if they have alterations based on our assay or another assay that we use, Boston Gene or another assay with do whole genome sequencing, I am giving immunotherapy first after um, after chemotherapy. So that's... Oh, yeah. Well, sorry, I was talking about the sequence give EV and um, infortunate vedotin. I, I totally agree. We give immune... So my sequence would be chemotherapy, immune checkpoint inhibitions with maintenance of Alimab, and then even if they had an FGFR alteration, we'd probably be going with EV next. And then uh, depending, and then, then after that, um, erdofitinib. And if the Thor trial comes home with what looks like, you know, hazard ratios of 0 0.5 or 0 0.6, that would change my mind and we'd be using, mm -hmm. uh, I would be There's using- There's no right or wrong answer to this. I don't think we have enough data about the sequencing. I just saw one small, very small phase two study in which they, there was a really small study that Golsky presented showing that maybe it's better to give the erdofitinib better uh, first before TV, but- <laughs> Saying that that's always done, and then that's saying that the sequencing is always there by the time that people go on EV, and EV is certainly a very good drug. Um, uh, I would agree, Tom. I I tend to do what you do. I I will reinforce your comment that we we want to give biomarker based therapy, right? I mean, heck, that PD one tells you that story, as you said. I mean, we've been chasing that biomarker for years unsuccessfully in this disease. So there's a there's a desire to give biomarker, even if the biomarker is imperfect and the data is complicated, as is the case here. I still think our, you know, the oncologist mindset is often to follow the biomarker, you know, even if imperfect. 
Yeah, and that's not always the right answer. Um, yeah, this has been terrific. Um, <laughs> Thanks, we really Farah. enjoyed it. Is there anything you'd like to add before we sign off? Thank you. I'd like to thank you and compliment you both on your Euromigos podcast and what you've been doing with the with the, the last meeting. I think you're doing a great job. Both. Thanks, Farah. We appreciate your, your support. <laughs> we appreciate your support. We yeah. really do. It's lovely to see you. All right, yeah. cheers.